Well, good morning, everybody. Um, we've had an amazing time so far. We've got an amazing band. Let's just give it up for the band. Um, <clears throat> they just lead us so beautifully every week. And whatever configuration of the band it is, they're just absolutely amazing. We really appreciate them. And uh, so, yeah, what an amazing week we had last week. Um, the Vision Sunday and Vision being cast, just so exciting. I don't know about you, but um, so I've kept my, this journal handy and I've been reading it and rereading notes from last week um, because it was actually very substantial, wasn't it? The, the vision um, and the way it was detailed. And I think it's not something that we're going to absorb in two minutes. It's something that needs to be digested, needs to be prayed over. And uh, we need to get to grips with it and see, like, what part do I have to play in this? Because it's only going to work when we all step up. We're the body of Christ. We've all got gifts. We've all got things that we need to contribute. And I think there was something in there for everybody. There's nobody here this morning who could read what we um, heard last week and not think, oh, I don't know where I fit into that. Everybody has got a part to play, which is amazing. And so the title is, Will It Be Us? Is it? No, it's not on the screen. Okay. The title is, Will It Be Us? And um, so what is that question asking us? Will it be us? What does it mean? Will it be us? Um, well, I think in the light of the vision, it's what reminds me, actually, what comes into my mind is, you know, Ezekiel overheard God saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And he's like, send me. You know, he was, he, his reaction was, uh, you know, very um, obedient, very um, wholeheartedly involved. He just wanted to get involved. He, he was volunteering and he was saying, send me. Uh, and I think um, the question is asking us, will it be us? And we looked at um, an amazing miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, um, where, where Jesus started off with some loaves and fishes. And um, so we're going to be looking over the next um, few sermons um, about how, like, like what-if moments, like, you know, possible things that God did that you read and you think, really? And they almost make you feel like, you know, so out there, isn't it? And the whole point of that is, is that we have an out there God. We have a very big God. And it's us who um, undermine God, we belittle God, we downplay God, and we bring him down to our level. And so really, this series is about um, thinking about grappling with that vision and saying, you know, because what was put out there was huge. Like, you know, um, uh, having a multi-campus church where there's, um, you know, we're expanding, we get into a bigger church, we're reaching more people and, and all sorts of things. And it's just, it's massive, isn't it? And I don't know if you sat there and thought, um, wow, this is big. And if you did, well, that's good because that's what vision is. And, and it really does justice to who God is and to the mandate that we've been given. And so in the Great Commission, that's um, what is um, called... Um, that part at the end of, of Matthew in particular in the Gospels where um, Jesus, when he was finishing his time here, he said to the disciples, you know, I'm sending you out now. I'm sending you out to go into all the world and, and make disciples and preach the gospel and baptize and cast out demons and so on. And, um, and that's the task that we've been given. But in Luke, it says, but stay here until um, you have been given power by the Holy Spirit. In other words, this is too big for you. What I've just asked you to do is actually not doable. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. And so 
uh, this morning. So we're just going to look at this question, will it be us? And I just want you to think, will it be me? Um, we all want to be grafted into those the big stories, you know, the big moments, the big miracles. We all love the big stories and the big miracles. And we all want to be part of those. Um, and the Great Commission is obviously a massive ask, but it's not doable in our own strength. It's not doable with our own resources and our own abilities. Um, and we often think of miracles as, um, and rightly so, as things that you know, God, God does the impossible, the things that we can't do. So it's just something that God does, and it's completely supernatural. And we oft, often think of it in terms of like God choosing as well. So there's like a sovereign element to miracles as well. And we often think of it in that way. Um, but I just want to suggest this morning that actually, um, for God to do miracles, uh, it, it's, it involves partnership with us. And there's always a part that we have to play. It's not always, it's not just about God suddenly deciding to do something. And we sit passively, um, you know, just chilling, doing life how we want to do it, and then expect miracles to show up. And this is kind of, this is kind of probably the issue that, that, that the church has in general, where maybe, you know, we criticize, we say, we're not seeing this happen, we're not seeing that happen. So really, the focus of my message this morning is uh, partnering with God. And what does it look like to be, in a, to be the kind of person that God would use um, to perform miracles alongside? What does it look like to be somebody that God would use? Does God just use random people? And so we're just going to focus on it to explore this whole idea of what our part looks like. So if we're saying a miracle isn't just about God, it's also about us and what we do, what is that part? What do we do? So we're going to look at the story of Moses. We're going to pick it up in Exodus chapter 14. So Exodus chapter 14, if you want to turn to that in your devices or if you've got proper paper copy, that's even better. Um, so, chapter 14, and we're just going to, it's a, quite a long story that, that really starts right from the beginning of Exodus, okay, but we're just going to sort of interrupt, you know that technique when you watch a film, and they show you the end at the beginning, and then the whole film is about going back to see how they got to that point. Well, that's kind of what I'm going to do this morning. We're going to see how God, we're going to start with the end, really, or start with this moment. It wasn't the end for, for Moses. Um, and we're going to look at this moment in time and how God used him so powerfully, but then rewind in his story to see, like, what was his journey? What got him to this point? Was he just chilling and God just decided to use him anyway? Or what actually happened? and see what we can learn from this. And so, um, Exodus 14, um, so they're in the situation, just to recap quickly, where um, Moses, um, some of you may know the story, I'm sure most of you know the story, how he was born to Hebrews, to, he was a Hebrew child, and he was hidden, and he was put in the basket so that he wouldn't be found, because um, the, the Israelites had been, they were slaves in Egypt, and Egypt was this, um, this tyrannical but very, very sophisticated civilization, the most sophisticated at the time. They had all sorts of military technology. They were educated. They were sophisticated. And they were using the Israelite people as slaves um, to build their empire for them. And they were, they were tyrannical rulers. 
And so they decided there were actually that maybe the Israelites were getting too big, they were, they were flourishing as, a, as a, an ethnic group. And so they wanted to control, do some ethnic cleansing and decided, right, we're going to kill uh, baby boys. And so um, Moses' mother hid him. Uh, it, the, the famous story of Moses in the bulrushes, he was hidden amongst reeds. And um, Pharaoh's daughter found him and cut a long story short, he, she absolutely falls in love with this beautiful baby, takes him into the palace. He becomes basically part of the royal family. He, he grows up in, that, in, that, um, in the, the house of Pharaoh. He is actually, according to um, Josephus, one of the um, first century historians who writes about this period, said that actually he was, um, he was groomed and he was prepared to be a future Pharaoh. So that's the kind of training that Moses had. And so he's brought up as um, in the situation, um, in the house of Pharaoh, but also he knew his Hebrew heritage as well. He knew his real identity. So it was a very complex situation that, that Moses found himself in. And so um, the story is, just very quickly, we'll, we'll cover it in more detail in a moment, but he ends up um, obviously has a heart for what's happening to the Hebrew people, and he... Um, he takes action in a way that is not the right way to take action, and he ends up killing one of the Egyptians who is mistreating one of the Hebrew slaves. As a result, he has to do a runner. He ends up in uh, the desert of Midian, where he is there for 40 years. And he was 40 years old when this happened. So when we catch up with him now at this point, um, he is 80 plus, okay? He's just over 80. And so um, he, he's there for 40 years, um, in the desert, he becomes a shepherd. You can't, you can't think of two more opposite um, lifestyles. So he's had this time in the palace, being groomed as, you know, uh, possible pharaoh in the future, with all the training, all the um, latest um, education that was available. And then he had to do a runner, finds himself in the back of nowhere in the desert, um, looking after sheep. And it's there that he meets his wife, and he gets absorbed into this um, family. Um, Jethro is father-in-law who plays the part later on and um, and so there he is he's just settled he's doing his thing he's got a different lifestyle he's been on the run because obviously they wanted to kill him back in Egypt and then God catches up with him and interrupts his uh, new life and that we have the burning bush, bush episode where God speaks to him in a bush that isn't actually burning but it looks like it's burning God speaks to him God calls him He's resistant, and um, he, uh, he has a whole load of excuses, which I think are really interesting. And, um, and then we get to the point where he finally gives in. It's like, okay, um, and he decides to engage with God, and he decides to be obedient. And so just to fast forward a little bit from that to this bit here in Exodus 14, so now they've man he's managed to get after the plagues and everything. He's managed to get the children of Israel released. And that was a long process. And um, so he's gone through the plagues. There were 10 plagues. There was a big, long process there. And then he gets them to a point where Pharaoh has finally said, fine, you can go. So they all go. We've had the Passover. We've had the blood on the lintels and the, and the, the angel of death passing over. Anybody who had the, the blood on the lintels. Um, were spared, and so they, they, they leave. And then they find themselves uh, in a very sticky wicket where the, the Red Sea is in front of them, 
and uh, there's mountains on either side and now a pharaoh typically has changed his mind because we've got this pattern all the way through pharaoh hardening his heart and so pharaoh is in pursuit so now they're trapped they've now got the red sea in front of them and they've got uh, this military this sophisticated military army behind them who is approaching and they, they're all aware of what pharaoh and his um, entourage are capable of and so um it says here um So uh, Pharaoh, uh, he took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other lots of, uh, sorry, um, let me read that again. 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers o over them all. And so this is who is pursuing them. And the, the children of Israel have nothing. They don't have anything to defend themselves. So here we've got this massive um, epic moment set up that we're we're coming into and Moses the people are panicking the people are crying the people are shouting and Moses says do not be afraid stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will give you today the Egyptians you see today you will never see again the Lord will fight for you you need only to be still and then the Lord said to Moses why are you crying to me tell the Israelites to move on raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the waters. And so God gives them specific instructions. And so just moving down, and it says in verse 20, um, sorry, 21, then Moses um, stretched out his hand over the sea, uh, and all the night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry ground. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And so this is, we're starting with um, this amazing miracle that, that God performed, that Moses got to be part of, that the children of Israel got to be part of. And I just want to ask the question, do you not notice how he was just so unflinching? Moses was unflinching. In this absolutely impossible situation, how could he be so calm? How could he say, stand still he didn't know what god was going to do but he just knew god and he knew that god was going to deliver them he knew he didn't know exactly how but um he he just completely believed god and so um i just want to kind of rewind on the story and think well how did moses get to that point um what what was it about moses that uh, enabled god to use him in this miracle because i don't people don't just suddenly appear um, in these situations, there's always a process. I always remember Joyce Meyer saying that, that when she suddenly started becoming quite well-known, the number of people who'd say to her, oh, you know, where have you been? You know, like, um, how, you know, how did you get here? And she's like, I've been somewhere. You know, in other words, there is a process. There's a long journey. I've had my years of being, you know, in the back of beyond. I've had my years grafting. I've had my years, you know, being misunderstood and all these things that happen. And so I just want to sort of unpack that, that journey a little bit and look at if we want to be people who are used um, in, in our lifetime, and we all want our life to count, don't we? If we want to be used in our lifetime, if we want to be grafted into that, the, the great miracles that God has for this community, um, what's it going to take? What does it look like? What's it going to mean for us? Um, do you think that we'll just be continuing doing what we've always done if that's going to happen? These are the questions to consider. 
What did Moses have to do? What was his journey that got him to this point? He didn't just suddenly appear with his staff and God used him mightily. No, there was a big, a big process involved. And so, um, one of the first things that I want to uh, point out is um, that we can learn from Moses is that, in, number one, he, he cared about what God cared about. So God chose to use Moses, first and foremost, because he cared about what God cared about. In Exodus 3, when he saw the mistreatment of his people, um, his heart broke. He cared about what God cared about. What does God care about? Well, I don't have time to unpack this in massive detail, but just to list some of the things he cares about people, doesn't he? He cares about um, injustice. He, um, he, had a, he told the Pharisees off because they didn't care about injustice and they didn't love God. And so he cared about injustice. He, care, he cares about the poor. He cares about um, the widow. He cares about um, how pe- you know, all of our plights when we're dealing with illness, when we're dealing with misunderstanding, all these things. And so um, Moses had a heart after God. He cared about what God cared about. And we're never going to get used in, in, in the great miracles that God wants to do here, the great big thing that God wants to do here. We're not going to be part of that or be used as part of that if we actually don't care about what God cares about. So that's a challenge this morning. What do I actually care about? What is my agenda in life? But he cared about the plight of the slaves. Unfortunately, at that point, he acted wrongly. He did it in the wrong way. So that's something to be aware of. Perhaps we do care about what God cares about, but maybe we don't handle ourselves in the wrong way. He lashed out and he ended up killing um, the Egyptian. And as a result of that, he ended up having to be on the run. And as a result of that, um, he spent 40 years in the desert. And the, the desert period um, in the Bible always represents um, kind of a time of being set apart, a time of um, obscurity, being in the background, suffering, rejection. Jesus had to spend time in the desert, and during that time he was tempted. And, um, and so this period... Um, that, that Moses uh, was in, this 40-year period in the desert. It's a long time, isn't it? Um, and so perhaps we need to handle our desert periods better than we do and see the bigger picture and see the purpose of those seasons. If we're going to partner with God, if we're going to be used in the big thing and be part of the big miracle and be part of what God wants to do, we're going to have to partner with God, and it's going to involve suffering, training through suffering, because those periods are the training ground. That's when our characters are developed. And, uh, and it happened to all of the greats that were used in, in the Old Testament. You think of Joseph. You know, he spent time in, in a well, you know, completely rejected by his own family. He experienced enormous betrayal. You read the story of Joseph, and you think, how on earth did he get out of that with the attitude that he had? But he, he, he managed that season of rejection, of betrayal, of mistreatment. He managed it in a godly way. Not in the way where I'm going to lash out and kill the Egyptian, but he handled it in a different way. He responded during this season. And I think there can be two responses when you're in a season like this. There can be a, a kind of um, a response where you almost get acclimatized to 
this season of this backwater season, this obscurity. It's almost like, and I get the feeling with with Joseph or with uh, Moses that he um, he was almost comfortable in this, you know, this new lifestyle of of being in the back of beyond. Maybe he was glad to put Egypt behind him and, and his experience in the palace. And, and all the pressure that was put on him in terms of his grooming and who he was supposed to become, maybe he was glad to be out of it. I don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us, but it seems that he's certainly reluctant to, to move on from this place. And so sometimes we can, be, we can have bad experiences where maybe we've, we felt a call, we felt like uh, God was asking us to do something. Maybe we stepped out and did it, but we didn't do it in the right way. And we ended up um, experiencing um, rejection or alienation or something went wrong and and we've just kind of like sidelined that whole thing. And what should have been a season, what should have been just being parked in a lay-by to sort of catch your breath. So like, you know, when you go on a long journey, when we used to go to Cornwall, um, we would find a nice, you know, a nice spot to stop. Uh, but it was just a pit stop. It was just, the, the purpose of that was to just kind of stop, go to the loo, go and get some food, just have a little walk around before getting back in the car and continuing. And, some, and these seasons are really a little bit like that. They're meant to be temporary, but some of us park in them and it becomes um, a, a new comfort. It becomes a new uh, alternative, really, to what we were asked to do in the first place. When in fact, God means it as a training ground. God means it as, you know, this is a time to really dig in. This is a time to read the word. This is a time to pray. This is a time to be faithful in the background season. This is a time to, um, to live before the audience of one when nobody sees what you're doing in your own house. Instead of just lying around watching Netflix all the time duh, 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 and thinking, why is God not using me? Maybe this is a time to really get to grips with God's word. Let's use these seasons really well. And so if you want to be part of um, the big miracle, the big thing that God wants to do here in this community, in this church, we're all going to experience these seasons that we have to make some choices and we have to recognize the season. We have to choose um, how we're going to navigate that season. And, and we have to partner with God and know that he knows the bigger picture. Even when we don't know where it's going, we don't know where it's going to lead to, we don't understand what's happening to be faithful during that season. And I get the feeling that maybe Joseph or Moses, I get the feeling that maybe he um, had become a little bit too comfortable and really wasn't wanting. Um, he wasn't so receptive, really, to the things that God was asking him to do. And so he has the burning bush experience. He's out there minding his own business, um, doing a day's work, looking after his sheep. And he has this experience, and God speaks to him. And um, so the third thing that we can learn is that Moses surrendered Okay, Moses surrendered, but initially, he surrenders eventually, but initially, he's got some objections, and some of his objections are, who am I? Who am I that you would ask me? Does that objection sound familiar? We think um, that, God can, that God can only use so-and-so, or use that person because of their skill set, use that person because of their background use that person because of um, uh, just the kind of um, talents that they've got. And so he's really saying, who am I? When, when God says, you know, I want you to go and this is what I want you to do. I want you to go and free your people, which is what his heart was to do in the first place, but he just did it the wrong way. And he had to go through this, this period of training. And um, he's like, no. 
And then he, his next question is, well, who are you? In other words, he, I'm paraphrasing, but he, he basically says to God, who am I going to say sent me? In other words, who are you and what is your name? And God's reply to that is that famous, you know, I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent you. So the reply to his who am I is God saying I am. And as he's saying to, he's saying to Moses, you know, whatever you're not, whatever you feel you don't have, I have. This is who I am. This is who I am that's calling you. Then he, his next complaint is, what if they don't believe me? He's saying about the children of Israel. What if the children of Israel don't believe me? And so God tells them what to say. And then he says, um, oh, God, I've never been eloquent. You know, I, I can't speak. I, I really can't do this. Well, there's a slight contradiction really here because if you read in Acts 7, um, Stephen's famous sermon before the Sanhedrin, he's actually described as uh, being very eloquent and being um, very skilled with words and being very knowledgeable, which he would have been had he been, if he was being groomed for, uh, for leadership, if he was being groomed to be a future pharaoh or play at least a significant role in the empire, um, he would have undergone training. He would have had access to the best education it, the, that the world at that time had. And so what is that about? Uh, the Bible doesn't really tell us what that discrepancy is, except that some people have suggested that maybe his confidence was at an all-time low. Um, maybe he'd got to the point where, you know, he'd spent so long kind of not engaging with the will of God in that sense. He was in the season. Maybe perhaps um, his view of himself changed and he just felt like, I can't do this. And maybe that was a good thing. Maybe God could actually work with him now. Maybe that was the whole point. Maybe he had to get to a point where, you know, he was the big, you know, he was, he was doing military stuff back then. He, he led um, a successful um, uh, battle against the Ethiopians and, and won, his, the history books tell us. And so Moses knew what he was doing in terms of, of warfare as well. But we see him in a very different place as a shepherd. And so um, maybe he just got to a place where he felt like, um, you know, I've left that world behind, I've left that life behind, and now he almost felt intimidated by it. Whatever his reasons were, he was in a place where now actually God could use him. God couldn't use him when he was perhaps arrogant at that time, operating in his own strength, doing his own thing, doing it his way. How many of us perhaps have been trying to do stuff in our own strength? We've been arrogant. We have been using our own talents. We've been operating in our own strength. We've been thinking, oh, I can do this. I've got this. Well, that's exactly the thing that precludes you from being used in the big miracles. God can't work with somebody who thinks that they know it all, that they can't be taught anything, that they've got it all together, that they're great. He needs somebody who's in this place that Moses is now in. Who am I? Not that God wants us to have low self-esteem. No, he wants us to have self-esteem based on, on our identity in him and what he can do for us. So this is, not, this is not saying, hey, being like, oh, I'm a little worm, that that's a good thing. No, it's not saying that. It's saying um, we need to have a very realistic view of ourselves. We need to be able to say, actually, I can't, I can't do this in my own strength. But then having something within us that says, I'm willing to go for it, though, if you're going to help me. I'm willing to go for it if you give me the strength. But I can't do it myself. And so he makes this excuse, I can't, I'm not eloquent. 
which obviously wasn't even true. And then he finally says, and I love this one, and we've all heard this before, oh Lord, please send someone else. Please. Now, that is a very understandable thing to say, given what he's being asked to do. Please send, send someone else. Because um, surrendering to God, and this is what he ultimately did, but this is the process of, of looking at how he did that. He's putting up his excuses. He's complaining. And surrendering to God means um, taking on God's agenda. It means being inconvenienced. It means life won't be as you know it anymore. Are we prepared for that kind of surrender that's going to mean my life as I know it might be over if I say yes to God? If we're going to do this big thing we're going to do in the community, what's that going to mean for some of us? Will my life be the same as it's ever been? We've got to be willing for that. And I think Moses was weighing up um, in this moment. Am I willing for what, for what this might entail? And um, so he finally, God says to him, what is that in your hand? Chapter 4, verse 2. I love um, this question. And I love how God works. And he's saying that to us this morning. What is that in your hand? So in the midst of all this complaining, he says to Moses, what is that in your hand? He says, a staff. He replied. What was the significance of the staff? The staff is a very significant thing all the way through. Um, the Bible. And so it, it represented his identity, it represented his vocation, it represented his, his, his skill set, it represented the means of his livelihood, it represented his lifestyle and his job and his way of making a living in this world. But it was more than that, it represented his whole identity. So just like we might have like coats of arms today and um, family crests and things like that, um, in this it, back in this era, it was the staff. So Jacob was buried with his staff. Um, it was this staff was put alongside, and there are all sorts of references to the staff. It's a really interesting study, actually. I felt when I was preparing this, oh, I'd love to just do a whole thing on the staff because it's so interesting. And it, it was completely uh, represented the person. Uh, and so this was very, very significant for God to say to Moses, what is that in your hand? He's basically asking him a rhetorical question which Moses answered, he said, well, it's a staff. And so um, God wants to transform his view of this staff. So he says, throw it down. What is the significance of throwing his staff down? He's basically saying, lay down everything that represents you up to this point. Lay down your identity at this point. Lay down everything that you can do that you've been doing in your own strength at this point. Lay down your means of supporting yourself. Lay down your vocation. Lay down um, everything that's to do that represented Moses at this point. He's saying, lay it down. So he throws the staff down, and it becomes a snake. And, and I, I think the snake represents um, the, the power of evil that really... It, we, it conjures up um, connections with um, Genesis 3, where you know the, the serpent... And the association of the snake and the serpent with evil. And he's in this situation where he's being asked to do, like, really take on spiritual warfare. To take on the ultimate uh, representation of evil in the day. And so this, it becomes a snake. And it becomes something that he would want to run from. Something that he might want to not engage with. Something that he might not want to be part of. 
And so there's risk involved in, in following Christ. There's risk involved in being part of the big miracle. This is also part of it. When the snakes are there and the snakes are in your way and the snakes are um, something that you, that you have to overcome, the, the frightening things coming against the, the powers of darkness. And then God tells him, take the snake by the tail. Well, that's the last place that you take a snake by, by the tail. That is counterintuitive because, you know, you know that you take a snake from just the back of its neck, just at the very, very top. Not that I would ever attempt to do that. Um, but you certainly wouldn't grab a snake by its tail. And it must have been frightening. And I think what God was teaching um, Moses in this moment was obedience. Do what I ask you to do. And the consequences are up to me. The outcome is up to me. You just do what I ask you to do. And I think sometimes doing what God asks us to do is frightening. It's not what we want to do. It's counterintuitive. It seems um, like it's, we're sabotaging our life almost. What is God asking you to do that, that this could represent? Take the snake by the tail. Um, but he does it. And as he does, it, it, it changes back into the staff. And so what's happening here is God is redefining his staff for him. And he's saying, um, I'm now changing. Everything that, was the, that the staff represented up to this point, it now means something else. And so as the narrative progresses, um, you'll see through, as he, he has to keep going to Pharaoh through the, all the plagues. There were 10 plagues. He had to keep going to Pharaoh, and the staff played a part in this process. So he'd have to hold the staff up or, you know, put the staff into the, the water and so on. And so the, the staff represented, um, it became something that represented that God was with him, and it was God's authority, and it was God doing the work. And as the narrative progresses, it becomes a staff of God. And so it goes from being your staff to the staff of God. And sometimes, on some occasions, um, it even becomes synonymous with Moses' hand. So it shows the extent to which the staff was part of Moses and also part of God. It was God displaying that actually it's not the staff, it's not the stick, it's me. It's what I am doing. It's my supernatural strength upon your weakness, upon what you can't do. But the staff was just a physical emblem, a physical representation of Moses being completely giving his life over to God. And sometimes we need, we're very um, physical, tangible people, aren't we? We're, we're, very, um, we're very fickle. And I think we need physical things, don't we? And I think God understood this with, with Moses. And so this whole staff development, like I said, through the Bible, you'll see later on with like Gideon had a staff and instead of him inconveniencing himself to run off and heal somebody using his staff, he sent somebody else and it didn't work because the whole point was there's nothing magic about this stick. There's nothing magic about this staff. Gideon should have held on to that, or Elisha was, sorry, should have held on to this, and the healing that should have happened would have been done um, because of God's presence, because of God's power, because of the power of God on Elisha. And so it's a really interesting study, the staff. And so um, this represents how Moses goes through this process of surrender, and he then has to face going to, to Pharaoh time after time. It wasn't even a simple process. It was bad enough that he had to go at all. They had, had to go and face Pharaoh. And it would have been frightening. Have you ever had the experience of 
maybe you're not like me, but you know, I can get intimidated by um, people that I think are more sophisticated, more clever, more uh, have it together, especially pe maybe sometimes even people who have more power, like at work, even though you know they actually don't know any more than you, or you know that they actually, um, whatever, somehow they can still be intimidating because they have the power. And there's something about that that can be a little bit intimidating. And I can be intimidated by buildings. Sometimes I feel, I remember um, I went to university back in Belfast at Queen's. I used to be intimidated by that building because it was so grand. And I, I used to feel like, I don't really think I'm good enough to be, to be here. All these people are very clever. I don't really think, um, you know, I just always felt a little bit in awe of the building. I always felt it was really kind of beyond being too good for me. I don't know if, if any of you feel that way sometimes. And I'm pretty sure... Moses must have had to face that kind of feeling going back, back to, to Pharaoh, the one with the power, the one who's been, um, you know, exploiting his people all this time, the one who's got the big armies, the one who's, you know, the most civilized um, uh, people group in the, in, at that time in ancient Eastern civilization. It must have been intimidating. Here he was, a little, you know, already on the run from them in the, in the past. Here he is, a little shepherd going and saying to Moses, or saying to Pharaoh, you know, will you let my people go? And then he had to go through this process of, um, right, okay, if you don't, well, then this plague's going to happen. And then the plague would happen. And then Moses would, or Pharaoh would then, yeah, okay, I'll let you go. And then he would change his mind. And this, this went on and on and on. Sometimes there were seven days between them. So this dragged out for quite a considerable period. And I think what was happening here is that God was training Moses he was having to face his fears. He was having to recognize time after time that actually God is more powerful than Pharaoh. God is bigger than any of this. This is huge, but you know what? God is even bigger. And I think he had to get used to, and he had to, he had to get accustomed to facing these impossible situations. Um, and so... I just want to ask you, really, what is in your hand? Um, what do you have that you feel like, maybe my staff isn't as big as somebody else's, maybe it's not as significant, but it's just, God is just asking us this morning, if you want to be, if you want your life to be used by God to be part of the, the miracles of what he wants to do here, we're going to have to make some choices that we agree to hand the staff over, to let to throw it down, let it come up differently, and take on uh, the mandate that God has um, for your life. You know, we're not going to be part of this without sacrifice, without discomfort without pain but are we willing for that we all want the big miracles but are we willing for this part are we willing for the journey that it takes to get to that point God wants to grow a people who are fully surrendered you see I'm prepared for my life not to look like it did before if that's if that's how you want to use me if that's what you want to happen You know, it says, Jesus said in Matthew, you know, if you're not prepared to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. 
we can't engage in the Great Commission, we can't engage in the big thing if we're not willing to take these steps that we see Moses taking and being willing time after time to go through. Another thing that we learned from, from Moses is his obedience. Moses was learning obedience. He was being trained in obedience. And so when we see him in this moment in Exodus 14, and you know, it's, and imagine if it was being depicted by a cinematographer, how it would look, you know, the, the music and how great he would look. And I'm sure they would choose somebody with great stature, with the big staff, you know, placing it in, in the river, just like God said. But this is the journey that, he, that, that got him to this point. 40 years in the desert, 40 years in obscurity. And then having to jump through all these hoops that God was asking him to do that, that trained him. Are we willing for that? Um, it says in um, just, so just some verses on obedience, blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to him. There's two kinds of obedience. There's the obedience that, that um, is based on us obeying God because this is what it says in the word. Okay? Then there's specific things that we're asked to do. And so we have to train ourselves. You know, instead of lounging around and maybe chilling, um, waiting for the big thing to happen in God's time, you know how we say that thing, oh, I'm just waiting on God, you know, God's time. Maybe instead of doing that, we need to be spending time in the Word. We need to be engaging in prayer. All those disciplines that, we talk, that are here that we've talked about in the, in, in the vision, um, about, you know, the, the disciplines of confession, confessing the word over my life, the discipline of living before an audience of one. And it says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. James 1.22, do not merely, merely listen to the word and deceive yourselves. Um, and then I reply, um, Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. So in other words, if we don't obey him, we actually don't love him. So how are we going to be used in the big miracles? How are we going to be used in the big thing that God wants us to do here? Will it be us? John, 1 John 2, 17, the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Do you want to live forever? We want to do the will of God. And the way to do the will of God is not, it's not an easy road. But I tell you, it brings enormous blessing, harvest of righteousness, and it brings like eternal reward. Matthew 7, 24, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. That whole parable about the wise man who builds his house on the rock and the foolish who builds his house on the sand, that is all about illustrating that the person who built their house on the rock is the person who's built their life on God's word. Somebody who obeys God's word. And so obedience is absolutely crucial. And so Moses um, soon realized that he had to be obedient. He, he had to surrender to God and he had to just do whatever God told him to do. 1 Samuel 15, 22, it says, to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. Do you know who that was said to? 
That was said to Saul, who was given a specific remit. Don't have time to go into it, but he didn't carry it out completely. He was supposed to um, carry it out to the letter of the law. And what he did was, after um, killing, taking out an army, doing what he was supposed to do, he kept the plunder. He kept the good plunder. And he didn't think he did anything wrong. And Samuel approached him and said, this is the word of the Lord to you. To obey is better than sacrifice. And so God takes obedience very seriously. So just finishing off, let's just get back in uh, 14. In this moment where he now finds himself with the staff in the Red Sea, and he he experiences a mighty miracle. We can see the journey that Moses has taken. And so I just want to ask these questions. If you want to be... um, on this journey with us, if you want to be able to say, you know, answer to the question, uh, will it be us? If you want to be a part of that group who's responding like Ezekiel, yes, yes, I want, I want to be part of that. The questions are, do you care about what God cares about? Are you willing to do your desert time? Are you willing to surrender? Are you willing for your life? to not be like it ever was? Are you willing to not spend your money on what you want to spend it on anymore? Are you willing to do whatever God is asking you? Are you willing to be obedient? Because God values obedience more than anything else because he can work with people who are obedient because we're just doing what he's asking us to do. Let's be like Moses. where it says in Hebrews 11:24 says by faith Moses when he had grown up refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter he chose to be ill-treated along with the people of of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible. Do we see him who is invisible? By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry ground. But when uh, when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. God is greater than we can ever imagine. He is a big God, and no matter what, you know, the vision that we heard last week might, might sound huge for us, but God is able. He is the God of the impossible. But for us to be used in that process, for us to be part of what God wants to do, we need to be willing um, to surrender ourselves and to be obedient this morning. Let's just pray. just with eyes uh, closed and heads bowed just respond in your own heart I'm not going to do an appeal or ask for any public response but in your own heart just ask yourself the question what is your answer to that question will it be us so Lord we just thank you for your word thank you for the power of your word and we just want to be people this morning who 
respond to your word. We want to be like, like Moses and value the eternal things of God, of the kingdom, than entertainment in Egypt, than treasures of Egypt. And so God, we want to submit to you today in Jesus' name. Amen.